Kinfolk, let us pray. Gracious and loving God, transfigured before us, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds will be pleasing and acceptable unto thee, our guide and our destination. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. <laughs> Friends, it was a gift to be able to take some time with my small family and go and visit my parents on the island of St. Martin, the collective of St. Martin, the friendly island, a place that was only recently ravaged by a terrible hurricane two years ago. And even in that time as we were there, though we saw signs of the damage and destruction that had been wrought, we also saw indications of new life and rebuilding and a spirit of joy and hope amongst a people whose entire existence in some way is built around hospitality, is built around welcoming strangers from all around the world, even Americans. Even the French were friendly. It's like I'd stepped into a dream. But it was an absolute delight. Transfiguration Sunday is a holiday for Christians. It is an important one. It is a day when we begin to realize the truth. But it's a confusing truth. And it requires us to Take a moment, catch our breath, and re-examine our assumptions about the way of things. Many years ago, I was living in Palestine, and I was staying in a village called Belain, and the village had a problem. This village in the West Bank of Palestine was right smack dab in the middle of where the Israeli army wanted to build their wall. For those of you who are unfamiliar with it, the apartheid wall or the separation barrier is one of the largest uh, uh, engineering feats on the face of the planet. It makes the Berlin Wall look like a garden fence, 90 feet tall, fully three times higher than the Berlin Wall, and at 350 miles in length, it is 10 times longer than the Berlin Wall. Yes, it is visible from space. Many villages lie in the path of the wall, and that's a problem for the people who want to build it. Another issue is that most of these villages are farming villages. They're communities that grow olives. Olives have been a staple crop in the Holy Land for thousands of years. And many of these olive trees are hundreds of years old. If you've ever seen an olive tree, especially a really old one. They're not incredibly tall, but they're these wild, gnarly-looking things. Beautiful wood that grows very, very, very slowly. And so many of these farms were intergenerational farms. And when we think of centennial farms or generational farms here in Michigan, we, we have our special signs that we put up. There was one outside the farm where my ancestors were from. It's got a picture of a wolverine on the top. It says, Centennial Farm proclamation from some high muckety-muck, usually the governor, says this farm's been in the hands of the same family for a hundred years, and a hundred years is a long time to an American. <laughs> and in Palestine, it's a season. 
Some of these farms go back a thousand years, having been held in the hands of the same family for 20 or 30 or 40 generations. And these trees are ancient. And one method is to simply cut the trees down at the roots. The method they had chosen to rout these olive trees at Bel Ain was to use fire. The Israeli army places incendiary devices throughout the orchard in the evening, ignites them, and the trees go up in a massive conflagration. And my role as a Emergency medical technician with the Red Cross, I, prin I principally distributed albuterol inhalers uh, for people with asthma who were reacting to the smoke from the fires as they watched the trees burning and burning and burning. Some of these trees were five, six hundred years old, and I watched as well as they went up in smoke. For the avarice and greed of a single generation of people, the work of a dozen generations was turned into ashes. And the following morning I went out before the sun rose. And there were farmers going through and assessing the damage and trying to figure out what they would do, where they would go, where they would move, when the bulldozers would begin to arrive. And I saw a very elderly gentleman standing off to one side by what looked like the withered trunk of an olive tree. It had to have been two and a half feet wide, massive thing, and the fires were out. And I went up to him, and in my broken Arabic, and in his broken English and Hebrew, we talked about the tree, and he brought me over. He said, look at this. And inside the tree, through a crack in the wood, you could see a light, an orange ember. And it was the remnants of the fire that had been burning that last night inside the tree, still burning. In roads in Greece, the terrible forest fires that have decimated the olive orchards on that island. It's been reported that the fires in those trees, some of them will burn for weeks inside those trees. But the look on the man's face was interesting because I saw a tree that was dead beyond saving. And he knelt down in the dirt and he swept away the rubble and he showed me all around the base of the tree these tiny little green leaves because he knew something ancient about olive trees. It is not the center of the tree that is alive. The heartwood of the olive tree is dead and it's consumed by the fire. But it is only that outer cambria of the tree, that area just beneath the bark where the life of the tree is sustained. And so olive trees are resilient. And what he was saying to me was this, even as this tree continues to burn, there is new life and it will return 
And like this orchard, the people who have lived here for over a thousand years will return. It is so easy to imagine ourselves in the shoes of Peter, standing there seeing something that is beyond belief. And the story of the transfiguration in the Gospel of Mark, just like the story of just about anything with Peter in the Gospel of Mark, is about Peter getting it wrong. It's fun to make fun of Peter in this story, but when you understand what's going on in his mind, it becomes a little bit darker. Peter sees his rabbi transfigured, changed. His clothes are now white, his face shines, and there beside him are Moses and Elijah, the prophets that Peter probably grew up hearing stories about. Peter knows the story of Moses coming back down from Mount Sinai, his face shining so brightly with the light of God that he has to veil it and hide it from the Israelites. Peter believes that this is the moment. This is it. The Messiah has come. And Peter knows the book of Ezekiel. He knows the prophecy. He knows what must happen. Ezekiel, preaching to those lost people in Babylon, preaching to those exiles, prophesying to them, trying to get them to remember their history and remember what's going to happen. And Ezekiel, the only one who believes in Yahweh. Yahweh's the only one who's carrying fire for him. Ezekiel thinks he's all alone. He thinks he's the only person on the face of the planet who knows God. And he's trying to convince this intransigent third generation of exiles that there is a land for them to return to. And he prophesies and he says that when the Messiah comes, when the great battle begins, there will be a feast of tabernacles, a feast of booths. And Peter, standing there transfixed before the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, believes in his heart of hearts that that moment has come. And so he says, then, this is it. This is it. We have to build tabernacles. We have to build the booths. I know how to do Sukkot. I know how to do the festival. I will build a booth for you, Messiah, and for Moses and Elijah, and we will carry out this great prophecy, and the, the war will begin. The great war that Ezekiel spoke of. Because now I believe. Now I believe. But the truth is not in it because the prophecy has yet to be fulfilled because there is still another sign that must be given. And Jesus has tried to tell him. He's tried to tell all of them. He has stood at the gates of Jerusalem. He's explained what must come to pass? Peter doesn't believe it. This can't be the moment. This can't be it. This transfiguration, this fulfillment of the great prophet Ezekiel, it can't be it. Because Jerusalem has yet 
to crucify its prophet. If you go to Memphis, Tennessee, you can stand in the very place where Martin Luther King Jr. stood when a bullet stole him out of this world and he was crucified on the crosshairs of an American rifle. And if you look down, you will see a stone of granite placed, etched into it the words from the book of Genesis, Joseph's brothers conspiring to murder him, saying to one another, Behold, here comes the dreamer. Let us kill him and then see what becomes of his dreams. Jesus has told Peter that he must go and die and be resurrected from the dead. Peter only sees the power and glory of the transfiguration and has forgotten the sacrifice and the pain. In Ray Bradbury's great science fiction novel, Fahrenheit 451, the government, the people, conspiring with the government, try to burn all the books. That's their goal, burn every book. This isn't uh, really science fiction. We've tried to do it before. Um, toward the end of the book, something beautiful happens. A collection of people who love books have come together in the wilderness and standing around a campfire, they recite the words of their books. Because you see, you can burn a book, you can destroy it, you can light it on fire, you can try to cast it into the outer darkness, but the book isn't the thing. It is, it is the word that is eternal. Burn every blessed Bible on the planet and our story will survive. We are not a people of a book. We are a people of a word. And the word is eternal and it is the light of the world. Do not confuse this book with the God we worship. The olive trees in Belém are growing back. I'll have to find another way to try to suppress the people who have been suppressed oh, many times over the course of the last 10,000 years. Peter will come down off of that mountain with his savior and together they will go to Jerusalem where Peter will realize the depth of the sacrifice. Three times he'll deny it. And in the last, he'll lose faith. But at the very end, 
quiet morning hour of a garden, there will be a miracle that will make all of this business with the transfiguration and the fire on the mountains and the holy wars seem like nothing in comparison to the change that's taken place. But I get ahead of myself. Lent, the Passion, Good Friday, an all-consuming fire that burns the material things of this world, the things that the gods of this world worship, and then a green shoot springs up, filled with life, because our faith is not in a material thing that can be destroyed by all of the armies wielding all of the fire of this world. It can only be refined, and then it will be renewed. Friends, this is the season of Lent. Let go of the things that are stumbling blocks that are preventing you from seeing new life in your own life and witness to the renewing power of the Holy Spirit, the hidden light that is still burning inside each of you and inside our church and inside our movement. That is the hope of an Easter people. Amen. Amen.